Welcome to the Capital Spotlight, where we interview institutional capital allocators to learn more about their strategies, sponsor and investment criteria, due diligence process, and asset management practices. I'm your host, Rob Beardsley, and today we are having a discussion with J.C. Clemens with Flagship Capital. Thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. Well, very cool. Well, tell everybody what you do at Flagship and, and what you guys are focused on. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, J.C. Clemens, Flagship Capital. My uh, background, uh, I was at HFF, I guess now JLL, for approximately seven years. Uh, I spent four years on the mortgage banking side as analyst, uh, underwriting and doing loan packages and really cutting my teeth in the industry, working for some of the top producers based here out of Houston. Uh, and then at the end of 20, I guess it was 14, I moved up into production on the multifamily investment sales team, uh, where I sold everything from high rise, shiny towers, all the way to B and C and D multifamily deals that had a couple hundred down units on them. So really got the full spectrum of multifamily there. And then at the end of 2016, I decided to move over to the principal side of the business. And that's whenever I landed at flagship capital. Flagship Capital Partners is actually a second iteration of Flagship Properties Corporation. Uh, so David Mintzberg is our president and CEO. Deals uh, that need loans from the sizes of $2 million to $50 million. Um, and so we've done just about $100 million of that business in Fund 4. That's one side of the shop at Flagship Capital Partners. The other side of the shop that Rob knows well is our equity investment platform. Uh, historically, it's really just been a member family office uh, to where we would syndicate each deal. And we did about $50 million of that type of business in multifamily deals all over the country. We have since raised an equity opportunity fund that is focusing on uh, value add multifamily acquisitions all across the U.S. And so we have $50 million that we're looking to place uh, of that fund. And we closed our first deal in January before COVID hit. And uh, now we're excited to have a lot of uh, to see new opportunities and what we hope is going to be some new uh, price adjustments out there. Absolutely. Yeah. So definitely a lot to talk about there. Uh, a lot to start with there. So first, something I noticed and something I want to get your take on is the evolution. It could just be the evolution of, of that business and specifically David, your president. But would you say that as cycles mature and deals get tighter, valuations are higher have you guys taken the approach to go lower and lower in the in the capital stack or safer and safer in the capital stack where the risk adjusted return is better but maybe the absolute return is lower yeah so i think it's interesting you know from uh david and jared's general partnership days whenever they were owning deals outright david something that his father taught him 50 years ago was if there is a buyer out there at, the, at your number sell it and he kept that thesis through every single cycle at time to lessen your risk or take a big bet or hop in, then I think you're really gonna lose that game. Um, I think if you have a consistent thesis throughout your entire business kind of you know, history and your go forward actions reflect that, then I think that's what's going on. So like with all you never be too highly levered if the market's a little hot, you know, everybody knows that. I think that if you can just consistently have a strong investment thesis and always stick to that and ours is really you know it takes 10 percent to understand uh 10 of our time to understand the real estate and underwrite the deal we need to spend 90 percent of our time digging into the sponsor and their ability to execute that transaction so diving into when you started at flagship 2014 could be a very similar time to right now oil 
turned negative briefly yesterday on the futures contract and you know all in all everything's going on to to make a very uncertain environment for especially oil so do you guys have experience with the previous oil downturn specifically in texas markets that have that exposure ranging from like a midland to a houston and how you know how did that how'd you manage that and how do you think that'll happen and play out this time yeah no absolutely so you know me i actually came to flagship in 2016 so i uh, just want to clear that up but you know the i do not have any experience directly in the uh different big oil and gas cycles as far as you know like a 1980s type impact to where the industry was completely turned upside down i was in houston in 2014 when oil went from 120 dollars a barrel to 20 dollars a barrel um david and jared have definitely been in houston you know in the 80s in the in-run days in the different cycles because this city is you know can be somewhat cyclical and so um i think having their insight into how we look at these deals going in on the front end has been very helpful for me because I've only been in the industry 10 years. So my only experience is the 2014, you know, 2020 crash. It, it is as bad as it sounds, um, but it is not as just crazily terrible as, you know, oil's not going to trade it negative for a significant amount of time, you know, and so Houston, the landscape is definitely going to change. Um, I do not have any experience in the Midlands uh, or the Corpus Christi's or those type areas or, you know, in the Bakken or, you know, different shale plays out there. But in Houston, I think that the main focus is going to be, it's kind of the, the tale of two cities here in Houston going forward. I think it's going to be 12, 18 months, whatever it may be in Houston until, you know, the oil and jobs and everything start to really kind of normalize. Um, I think where there's going to be a lot of potential heartburn in Houston is going to be on the new core class A construction because there's 25,000 units that are uh, under construction right in Houston. Job growth, we have no idea what that's going to look like in Houston going forward. Population growth in Houston has been some of the strongest in the country for the past 10 or 15 years. You know, for me, if I was putting my money our flagship, you know, our focus is going to be on that BC, um, you know, good basis good demographic close to you know job drivers that are still going to be working very long you know it could be two years or it could be 10 years houston is typically on top of every single chart with job growth and uh, different indicators on how well the economy is doing down here so going to be a little bit of a choppy ride on the front end but nothing that city and uh, good operators can't handle makes sense so let's jump right into today you mentioned might be a little choppy today. You guys are still putting out capital. I think I'm, I'm getting your emails. You guys are a, a, a shining beacon in a very uncertain market right now. A lot of people are closing their doors and hitting the pause button. Uh, but you're telling me you guys are active, just close a deal. So how are you approaching and valuing acquisitions and how has your underwriting changed given all the uncertainties? Yeah, so I'm going to take that question in kind of two separate ways. I'm going to do one on the debt side and then one on the equity side. So on the, the debt side, you know, our debt fund is focused on, like I said earlier, bridge acquisition financing um, in Texas. And so a lot of our, we have a handful of deals in Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio. And so going forward, we tell you that that number, a cap rate expansion of X or that it's a decrease in, you know, price of Y. 
And we're really leaning on the market to tell us what that is. And so the way that we approach that is, is that we're really, you know, not going to be looking to underwrite anything that was priced or underwritten pre-COVID because those valuations were obviously, you know, inflated or not, it was just a different world. And so we think that, you know, our metrics, like I said, our parameters are, um, you know, protocols for underwriting to be the exact same as going to be on a new market adjusted price. And so say somebody had a deal in Houston that they had under contract for 88 years. And that was in January of 2020. And they now gone back to sell or got a deal under contract again at 73 a year. Obviously, if we were 75% on the 88 number, now we're going to be 75% on that 72 number. And, you know, so that might look like a 60% loan to cost loan based on the valuation, but on the new valuation, it still makes us uncomfortable. Because again, our, our risk is really at the end of the day, if we have to take this deal back, what is it worth? And so our metrics are always going to leave us that buffer. Uh, and so that's really what we're looking for. Another deal that we're looking at is in Montgomery, Alabama. You know, every single siding on an apartment complex has a deal called Hardy Plank on it. That's where Hardy Plank is made, is in uh, just outside of Montgomery. Hyundai has a huge plant there. There's a massive military base. There's a big lumber industry. You know, so what we're really looking at on the equity side um, is for deals in kind of the central U.S., Texas, and the Southeast, just because we think that that's going to be a really good risk-adjusted return on our money going forward. Hopefully, those areas will not have been severely impacted from the impacts of COVID-19. Uh, everybody's been hit by it, but we don't think that that problem is going to linger there as far as it will have lingered in other major metros, maybe on the West Coast or the Northeast. Consistent, they're not going to swing up 6-7% annually on rent increases, but a lot of those areas have been very steady going forward, and a lot of those renters are not you know, majorly impacted by what happens on Wall Street, because a lot of those renters are hardworking you know, teachers and plumbers and people who work at Hyundai. And so if we work as an IBO, they don't care. You know, it, it doesn't impact their day-to-day -day life. And I think that's kind of a thesis that we're going, uh, really looking for going forward is, you know, a demographic that's just hardworking people that want to live in a safe complex with their families or with their significant others that are zoned to good schools, that have good jobs. And then if you just kind of stick to the, what we all kind of got into the industry learning, which is, you know, good real estate in a good location at a reasonable basis and good. Right. So it sounds like rather than changing your underwriting metrics, for example, stressing vacancy, stressing collection loss, you're just pivoting your story and, and seeking assets that are maybe a little more better positioned to withstand uh, COVID-19 and a potential recession. I, I think that's right. But definitely on the near term, we're, we're taking into account the impact. So for example, on our Montgomery deal, that deal we had under contract before COVID hit, and that deal has since gone back for a retrade. And there was two ways to approach that deal. It could just be a stone cold haircut on the deal uh, from the seller. At a, no matter what collection looks like in the future, you've got to retrade, we're closing the deal done. Or there's another side of it too that was uh, obviously we're not doing any of these negotiations, the general partner is, but another way that we have heard of people approaching it is putting the seller will put X amount of money into a reserve account. And they will have that reserve account that is in control of the new buyer impacts on collections but on the going forward basis we're you know definitely dialing back 
occupancies, definitely dialing back the potential rent increases. But I think in 12 to 18 months, we're assuming business as usual on our assumptions. Got it. So would you say this cycle rolling over, it, it, which it seems like it is, is causing you to look at a more longer term perspective and say, well, we previously thought we might be able to get in and get out on three year term. Now we might underwrite or expect to be in a deal longer just because the exit might not be there that we once thought. Yeah. So uh, every single one of our deals that we invested in, in 2015 to 16, everybody said this is going to be a three to five, four to seven, you know, year hold. Every single one of those deals consistently sold within, you know, anywhere from 24 to 48 months. So every deal that was in this past cycle was on the very early end of that investment horizon. We're saying three to five years right now. I think that you know, probably prepared for it to look more like six to seven instead of four to five. And if you're a three to five year guy or gal, then you need to be prepared for the four to five instead of the two to three. So how is your fund structure? Does it give you the flexibility to be able to hold longer or do you have a, a set maturity on the fund where you need to liquidate and, and get out? Yeah, so our fund is a, is a seven-year facility. And so the way that that works is every deal that we go into, we have a you know three to five-year investment horizon. And we've got 24 months to deploy our capital. And so that's where we get our real seven years from. We have the ability to extend that. Uh, you know, you can structure it in a way to where it is uh, in the general partner's best interest to get us out of the deal by, at that point. Right, okay. So how do you, you mentioned Montgomery deal, you mentioned you're looking at Indiana, sounds like you've got a lot of deal sources and you're looking in a broad uh, geography. How are you sourcing a lot of your deals and who's bringing it to you, to you and uh, you know, where do these relationships come from? Yeah, so you, being in business as long as David and Jared have and even myself, you know, there's a lot of existing relationships there on the debt side in Texas. Point, you know, I don't have a big network in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and I sure don't know a ton of people in Alabama, but you know, the more that you go to these, you know, larger conferences, you know, you and I were at the IMF deal in Dallas. Uh, there's some other, uh, kind of family office and investor networks. We, we lean heavily on the brokerage community to at least to bring those deals in. And then given David and Jared and mine and our other, uh, associate Mark Barron's given all of our backgrounds and the different cities that we've done business in over the tenures of our careers. If we get the deal on the door, find somebody that we have transacted with previously that is an investor or a broker that we can't call on in that city and then use that network to kind of do some back checks on the deal. So on the front end, very heavily uh, weighted on the brokerage community and existing relationships, I'd say probably 50-50. But then once we get that deal on the door, you know, our relationships, especially David and Jared's who've been doing this, because uh, I mean, Jared was buying deals for Camden, you know, all over the country. And so he knows a lot of people that are in these different states. So the, the due diligence process is usually us calling some people that we know out of that. So if you had the, describe the perfect deal, how it would come on your desk, what would it look like? What information would be included? Uh, you know, kind of high level, how would it be underwritten and the information would be provided, you know, paragraph, a couple bullet points. What's the best way for you to wrap your arms around a deal? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so let me think about that. Um, I think, you know, on the front end, just on the initial to get me interested in the deal, because it's not like I'm, I'm too cool for your deal. It's just literally for how lean of a shop that we are, it's got to be in the headline and it's got to be in the email. 
you know, so if you've got four pages on an email describing the deal to me, I'm, I'm literally not going to have time to read it. And so, but if your headline is, you know, got a deal, it's the going in six half, you know, 65 a unit, five-year IRR of X, you know, sponsor is from Y, his net worth and liquidity is Z, you know, please call for more information. Uh, that's going on the short list. And for me, I think it's uh, a sponsor that owns deals in those markets. So whenever, because it always kind of irks me whenever somebody says, oh, I really know this market inside out, but it's their first time owning an offer in that market. You know, so our, in our Montgomery deal, the sponsor who's buying that deal owns three other deals in the city and owns 11 deals within three hours of that property. You know, and so it's, they do know what collections look like and they do know the demographics and they do know, you know, the cyclicality of that market. Um, so Southeast or Texas, um, and uh, trying to think, you know, going in cap rates are, you know, they kind of are what they are. Um, I think that those are definitely going to widen out a little bit, but I've never really been too terribly focused on that if it's a true value add deal, because the income on the front end is obviously skewed. Um, I think that it would be definitely over 175 units. Uh, you know, over David's history, he said the most efficient number on every deal is 275 units. Anything above that, you don't have the efficiencies of the operation. 200, 300 units, uh, 1975-ish to 1995 uh, with a going in basis that makes sense. You know, I think that, uh, you know, on an older vintage deal in the Southeast, you know, call it 65, 70, um, you know, on something that's a little bit newer, you can inch it up a little bit more. I think the exit cap on those deals need to be heavily in spaces, if not have a seven angle on um, just that's a very conservative act. Everybody says, you see, you're full of shit. You can't find those deals out there. Both find the deal and Montgomery deal are both acting on seven caps on our underwritings, and we're still hitting mid to high teens. Um, and so you can find those deals if you look hard enough. Um, and I don't think that anything's going to trade at a seven cap. I think in three to five years, if the market's good, those are going to be well into the sixes. Um, but I think that my underwriting needs to be on my numbers, and that's where I would like it to be. Um, very conservative underwriting as far as what rents people think they can get. You know, the story of we're going to put five or seven grand into a deal and we're going to get 150 a unit is dead. Um, I think people need to be really conscious of that on what they can actually achieve. And so if they say, hey, this is the 33 IRR, I'm not looking at it. I'm just not going to underwrite. It's just not, there's, it's just not real. Those aren't out there unless you're buying something in bankruptcy and, you know, or there's some crazy, crazy story. So if somebody says, JC, this deal's an 18 on our numbers and I go in there and I mess with it and it's a 16 on pretty rough underwriting uh, on my end on a three to five year hold and the financing is set, you know, they've got not just we're getting quotes, but they've got a term sheet that they're ready to execute, then I think that would kind of be our, our perfect deal. That makes sense. That also brings up the question of at what stage in the deal, right? Are they still just kind of sniffing around the deal, seeing if there's interest or do they have it locked up? Are they you know, just LOI phase. So what, what's the best point for you to get involved? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the earlier, the better, just so that I can have time to underwrite the deals on the weekend. Um, but for us to really get serious and for me to take it up to David and Jared, because it's all about me leveraging their time um, is, you know, it needs to be under contract and it needs to be hard and the lender needs to be prepared because I cannot, I had three phone calls today where somebody was like, hey man, it'd be really nice if I could use your terms to go back and retrade the seller. 
and, and it's the chicken and the egg. You know, that's just not something that we're going to do. So I need people to be serious. I need people to be hard and under contract. And then at that point, I'm willing to take the time to dig into the deal and tell my superiors, hey, these guys are hard. They've got a hundred grand hard on the deal. I don't know if people are going to have to do hard money anymore, but, um, you know, hopefully not. Uh, but I think that, you know, it needs to be, the debt needs to be lined up. They need to be ready to execute the debt because obviously the equity partners can have some say on how that debt looks. And um, yeah, I think the earlier, the better, but it needs to be fully under control and not going into the bid process. Because whenever I take it up to investment committee, we're going to be ready to go, as you know, uh, Rob. And so it's, uh, once we get going and the machine's moving, we're going to look to close that deal on the equity side within three weeks on the debt side, just because third parties are typically have to be ordered, uh, you know, 30 days. So when you're underwriting, are you looking for first and foremost project level returns or are you layering on the sponsors proposed fees and then kind of solving for that net number? Or are you just focused, do we have a good deal on a project level and then we'll just go and negotiate those fees and see where we land? Yeah, so typically I underwrite our deals that they our numbers need to make sense net of fees. So um, frankly, you know, we're 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 we have been in the general partnership business, so we understand that general partners need to take fees. We get that. We're not the group that's going to come in and say you can't take an acquisition fee, <laughs> but we know that the market is not three points up front, you know, and so we've seen a lot of people try that and. At the end of the day, you know, if we charge fees, if y'all charge fees, whatever, my numbers that I'm solving to on my return hurdles are going to be on straight cash flow, and you know, it's going to be something that's going to be a mix throughout. The, the taxes are going to go up. You know, there's a building's going to burn down. You know, someone's going to steal money. You're going to switch management companies. You know, something's going to happen. And so I think that all that ancillary income that you can get from these deals essentially is just going to net out that those couple hiccups that are going to happen in the property. So that's a good question. We obviously will go in and negotiate the fees, but for me on the underwriting side, the project needs to make sense just on the, the bone metrics of the deal. And then if we need to sweeten the deal by doing something or the sponsor needs to take an extra fee and we can, you know, have certain metrics or there's an earnout with a lender, you know, it's really just, I'm basing it on the collections expenses that you know help the activities. So a couple couple last questions. So this is why do sponsors come to flagship for capital and what value do you add to your deals aside from just bringing in the capital? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think that people bring deals to flagship, you know, one on the debt side because we're a we're a balance sheet group. So um when people need money for draw requests or if they're paying their note or if a global pandemic happens and you know somebody needs some relief on interest they're going to call me they're not going to call midland they're not going to call wells fargo they're not going to call some servicer that's in some bunker up in you know, new york that's working on these deals um, and so that's really been a, a selling point to a lot of our borrowers is the fact that we actually keep these loans on our balance sheet for the entirety of it. And so we actually care what happens to these deals and we are willing to work with you. And so I think that's one of the main reasons that people come. Obviously non-recourse is nice and that's good on the debt side. On the equity side, I think it's because people really at the end of the day know that they have a certainty of execution, have a lot of phone calls. We're gonna, I'm gonna have a lot of late night phone calls with you about the underwriting. 
we're going to fly out to meet you. You're going to fly out to meet us. We're going to walk, you know, as many units as we can at the property. And then we're going to issue the form. You know, all of that on the front end might seem cumbersome and a lot of people get turned off of it. But once we do that, we're a go. You know, it is, we have never had a deal that we have done our normal process on and something unforeseen hasn't happened through due diligence that we haven't closed at our terms. And so I think that's what people know um, about us is that if we're going to do it, we're going to do what we said that we're going to do. So that's probably one. And number two, I think is really the experience of David and Jerry, you know, the principles of our firm. I think that people, a lot of sources out there, they're like, great, here's the money, send us a check. And while we're like that, you know, we do like distributions and we like for the deal to work. We do like to have calls with the sponsors and a lot of people will ask David and Jared for their advice on, on different things. You know, while we're not in the driving seat and we don't want to be by design, um, you know, these two gentlemen in a lot of cycles have owned and operated tens of thousands of units multifamily all across the United States. And so I think there's a lot of inherent value there as well for people to ask them questions and know that if something goes super south, it's not just going to be, Hey, give us our money back. You know, it can be, Hey, well, I remember this deal back in the early eighties when oil, you know, everybody left Houston and we did it this way, you know? Um, and so I think that makes people comfortable knowing that David and Jared come from the operations and ownership side of this business. And so we're not just money guys, you know, we're not just some financial institution in New York or LA that just send us our money. If it doesn't work, we're going to, you know, that are just not, not friendly and just don't have the ethical kind of, you know, compass that a lot of uh, people are looking for out there. And so I think that's probably the, the third point that I would say why people use us. Lastly, what is something that you're out in the market looking for in terms of a structure, a deal structure or a strategy, and you're just not really seeing it out in the market? For example, maybe you would love to do a deal that has no upfront acquisition fee, but nobody's really willing to do that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so I think, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we've been on the other side of this. And so the, the no fee thing really isn't a problem for me. I think that one thing that I would like to see that I really haven't been seeing a lot of is people really kind of structuring and having the cash reserves available for a deal because everything's probably not going to be as shiny as it used to be. So um, you know, it's for times like these is why you set a, set aside, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars that at the end of the day, those reserve accounts set aside is something that I really don't see a lot of people doing. And I think it's a, a product of the market being so efficient and so damn good for so long that people are just like, yeah, sure, 5% vacancy, you know, 4% debt, you know, no reserves needed. Fannie and Freddie are going to go easy on the, you know, replacement reserves. Let's just, let's underwrite it. So I think that people really setting aside stuff for a rainy day, I think would make me feel more comfortable or, and at least make me think that they've thought of that. And the guys that we're doing deals with have pretty significant cash reserves that they're putting aside and the deals still work. Um, and so I think that's what I, I would like to see. And then, um, you know, I think really on the, the debt side, I like seeing people that have gone through a lot of different options, you know, cause I see a lot of guys that are like, Hey, you know, Q10 is our, is our people, you know, we do all of our loans with them, you know, and I see the terms and they're really not the best, you know, and at the end of the day, we're not there to dictate, you know, what the general partner does on the debt side, but, you know, or maybe going through a broker and a true quote matrix of, Hey, this is why we did Fannie instead of Freddie, or, Hey, this is why we, you know, at the time picked Arbor instead of ReadyCap or, you know, whoever it is, because 
there's a lot of instances where you'll see bridge loans. Some people are like, all right, I got a banging deal, 85% of cost, LIBOR plus 200. But then there's so many fees baked into that term sheet to where that cost of capital is not LIBOR plus 250. It actually ends up being the same as the other ones. And there's so many covenants and restrictions in cash. And sure, the rate might have been four and a quarter, four and a half percent. But at the end of the day, you're going to be dealing with them on the draw requests. They're actually going to fund that good news money and not have some crazy underwriting metrics that they know you're never going to meet. And we're not going to require a cash management account. You know, and so I think that's my biggest thing is people really spending a little bit more time on the debt side instead of just blindly going for the cheapest rate, just because I historically everybody has done that and it just drives me nuts because I'm on that side of the business and I know that it's all facade and I know what the servicing and the interest rate caps and the, you know, $15,000 to run a background check. I know a background check doesn't cost $15,000. It costs $450 to run someone's credit, you know, in a full historic, you know, that kind of thing. And so whenever I see that, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. Okay. Yeah. Two good points. It's funny. I'm just about to release an article about cash reserves. So I'm waiting for you to critique me on that. Um, but I'll, I'll ask a few questions on that. So if I'm underwriting cash reserves, let's say I've got a couple months worth of expenses and debt service upfront reserved. Am I a conservative underwriter if I project those cash reserves to be refunded to me at sale in let's say five years, or should I assume that they all get spent at some point in time on a rainy day? That's a good question. And I think that's where it gets into the, you know, this is really an art and not a science because I've got a way of doing it and David's got a way of doing it. and Jared's got a way of doing it. I'll tell you that, you know, for me, it's kind of a calculation on the vintage of the property. And the, I'm just talking about kind of ongoing reserves. So say, you know, Freddie, Fannie, whoever says you're going to need 250 a unit, three, 325 a unit, depending on the deal, you know, but if you're spending $2 million in capital on the exterior of that building, you're probably not going to utilize as much of those reserves on a go forward basis throughout the ownership, you know, your ownership period. And so sometimes I'll underwrite, you know, if it's, you know, 250 or 350 a unit, I'll say that maybe you get 40% of that back, you know, throughout the tenure of the deal. If it's a 1985 deal, if it's a 2001 deal, maybe you get 60% of that back, you know, and so it's just really dialing in whatever number that you feel makes sense. On the going forward kind of rainy day cash reserves, I completely write those off. Uh, I think that's money that's just a cost of the deal. Um, if you get it back, great. And one thing that we will do also is, you know, as far as fees and refinances and, you know, disposition fees is we'll kind of incentivize our general partners on that. You know, so maybe they don't take the biggest acquisition fee, but if they sell at a number that is really, really great at the end of the deal, we'll let them get an act, you know, a disposition fee of 50 bits. Or if they do a refinance event throughout, uh, you know, months 12 through 36, and they return 50% of the investor capital back, they'll, we'll allow them a 50 bit, you know, refinance fee, you know, and so we'll incentivize that on the fee side. But as far as reserves, I think rainy day reserves completely write off ongoing replacement reserves, just because on the lending side, we end up sending a, a decent portion of those back to a lot of our borrowers. And so I think that's what a lot of people, unless you're not doing any work on the exterior, um, I think that there's, you know, it's safe to underwrite a, a percentage of those back. That's a good point. I think it definitely depends on what your CapEx plan is yeah. in terms of what you've identified, because there's obviously going to be ongoing CapEx and unidentified CapEx once you get into the deal. And I'm finding, I don't, you have a lot of experience, obviously taking in those reserves and, and refunding them out. 
but I would imagine that 300 per unit, especially for a class C asset is, is just not sufficient. Yeah. And I yeah. think that you're, you're exactly right, but that's definitely not sufficient if you're not spending any money on the CapEx, but if you're dumping two and a half million dollars into it, you'd be surprised how much you might have kind of laying around after the, the tenure of that deal. Right. So I think it's a fine balance of, of your R&M and your OPEX and your turnover. If you're going to do all your turns out of CapEx for the first couple of years, you know, your R&M might be a little under or overstated for the first bit, CapEx, and then eventually things kind of normalize out. So we're always tweaking with those three different variables, upfront CapEx, ongoing CapEx, and then R&M. Yeah, and it's, it's a stone cold R. I mean, like I said, there's David and Jared, both of my superiors, owned and operated thousands of units, and they're, they do not have a formula. You know, so it really is just kind of, it's a lot of gut feeling and a lot of faith. And it's really, you know, a lot into your people. I mean, Rob, you know, it's owning and operating these things. It's really, you're only as good as your boots on the ground. And so a lot of those people, if they're out there checking and painting the sides and pointing that out and doing this, I mean, that ongoing, you know, small maintenance throughout the, the tenure of ownership really can make a difference. But if you have, you know, porters and maintenance guys that only fix when they get called, you know, then that, that money can run out quick. Yeah. All right. Well, we're still out there searching for the formula, but uh, I'll let you know when I find it. So yeah, that's, that's all we have for today. Um, thank you very much for your time. Good discussion. Um, yeah. I hope to have you on again soon. Uh, thanks for having me and uh, I'm sure you and I will talk soon.